Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. I hope you enjoyed your time with family and friends last week as we took a short break for the holiday. This week, I want to look at something that is foundational to what we do as chiropractors. It turns out that one of the best chiropractic textbooks isn't a chiropractic book at all. In fact, Dr. Plogger told me he tried using it as a required text when he was teaching at a chiropractic school. He was told that he couldn't use it. Why not, he asked. Because they're only students, they said. They can't handle that. Well, I hope you've guessed which textbook I'm talking about, but it is, of course, White and Punjabi's Clinical Biomechanics of the Spine. When you consider that chiropractic is the blending of clinical biomechanics with clinical neurology, this textbook alone will give you at least half the story. I became obsessed with this book when I realized that mastering the information in this book, which I've certainly not done yet, will automatically put you in the top 10% of chiropractors, provided you conform your adjusting to match the principles in the book. Today I'd like to talk to you about some of my favorite concepts that I've gleaned from this book and how it's affected my thinking. I think you'll find this very interesting and I hope it'll inspire you to deep dive into this book and study it for yourself. So let's take a look at White and Punjabi's Clinical Biomechanics of the Spine. Over the years, I found that when students are learning to adjust the cervical region, they often struggle the most with the upper cervicals. A few weeks ago, I was with Dr. Wood, and he said that Gonstead would say that C2 is the hardest segment to adjust correctly. Then he said actually C3 is a little harder to adjust properly than C2 is. That's because of the tiny SP on C3 and its close proximity to the much larger C2 SP, which causes a lot of people to misdiagnose C3 subluxations as a C2 subluxation or to slip off the C3 SP and accidentally adjust the C2 instead, which will make the problem worse by increasing the relative posteriority of C3 by setting the C2 anterior. All that being said, young dogs often struggle tremendously to get good adjustments on the atlas. I think one of the reasons why this is true is because they don't have a clear picture in their head of what the joint looks like and how it moves. I know that was the case for me when I was just getting started. In the lower cervical spine, we know that rotation happens with the coupled motion of lateral bending. This is why when you see a spine with a lateral curve covering multiple adjacent segments, you should interpret that as a compensatory misalignment in response to a subluxation involving rotation. A great example of this is the PR or PL sacrum. Since each lumbar segment is only capable of a maximum of 5 degrees of rotation, it takes multiple lumbar segments to compensate for the high degree of rotation that can occur at the sacrum. Therefore, a PR sacrum will create rotational compensation through the lumbar spine. All things being equal, the lumbar rotation will perfectly balance for the sacral rotation, and both rotations will virtually disappear in front of your eyes. The only evidence of the rotation may be the coupled lateral bending that appears as the lateral curve, or scoliosis if you will, of the lumbar spine. White and Punjabi covers this coupling in great detail if you want to know more about it. As a side note, I used to teach this concept using the whiteboard in my classroom for my Gonstead labs at LifeU. Every single time, I would turn around to see a sea of glazed-over expressions and eyes rolled back on their heads like sharks, so I would then follow up my explanation by telling them, if anyone ever tells you that chiropractic is easy, they're either incompetent or a liar. This job is difficult, and that's what makes it so rewarding. So, getting back on track. If you understand the coupling concept that I just described, then you might think that the same coupling effect occurs at the atlas as well. Atlas rotation is coupled with lateral translation or even lateral bending at the atlas, right? 
Well, it turns out that's wrong. According to White and Punjabi, the coupled motion for atlas rotation is y-axis translation. In other words, up, or superior glide. If you test it, you can feel it on yourself. It doesn't matter if you look right or left, the farther you turn your head, the more you can feel the atlas translate superior. This becomes relevant when you attempt to adjust the atlas with a rotational component. I should also mention that not all atlas subluxations are created equal. Depending on the mechanism of injury, the misalignment might involve very little rotation, or it might involve quite a bit of rotation. The more you have to rotate the atlas prior to the corrective thrust in order to find neutrality, the more you will feel a superior glide affect your setup. To better explain this, let's take a moment to talk about the laterality of the atlas. Where does the laterality come from? Does the atlas vertebra translate laterally along the x-axis? Not really. In fact, if you see on the AP film that the lateral mass of the atlas has moved lateral in comparison to the lateral border of C2, that actually means you shouldn't adjust it, as this is considered a sign of ligamentous instability. So how can lateral translation be a sign of both hypomobility and hypermobility? Well, it can't. So that brings us back to the original question. When the atlas subluxation is present, where does the laterality come from? The answer to this question begins with the articular surface of C2. Unlike most of the vertebrae in the spine that have their articular surface oriented parallel to the floor, the C2 articular surface is angled, probably 20 to 30 degrees off of parallel. That means that when the joint capsule swells in response to a subluxation, it's going to push the atlas superior and lateral in relative terms, but not absolute terms. This is very difficult to explain, but because it's not in absolute terms, that is the reason why the misalignment cannot be well visualized on an x-ray. However, in relative terms, approximating the atlas toward the C2 articular surface will result in a reduction of nerve pressure and a restoration of normal joint biomechanics. The reason why this is a challenge is because if you have a misconception about the true nature of the misalignment, the tendency is to over-exaggerate the lateral to medial component and to underemphasize the superior to inferior component. The end result being an adjustment that moves straight lateral to medial and fails to reduce the subluxation. At the same time, if you over-exaggerate the superior to inferior component, the likely result is that you will approximate both joint surfaces with such force that you effectively misalign the C2 underneath the atlas. This mistake will cause a loud cavitation that I've often heard followed with the magic words, you really needed that, really? I guess some people really need a chirogenic C2 subluxation. Now, if you pay attention and have good palpation skills, you can immediately feel when your C1 adjustment produces a C2 subluxation. Again, this is usually the product of too much S to I in the thrust. I've not completed this adjustment because I've not discussed the A to P component. I just want to make it clear that I'm aware of that, but I want to complete the thought. So let's imagine a rotary brake, or a gauntlet adjustment with too much rotation, or a posterior thumb contact on the atlas transverse process. The rotation induced by the thrust will create a superior translation coupled motion. This motion, in turn, will stretch the joint capsule and induce further trauma to the joint, rather than the intended correction. This is why you want to take out the rotation and find neutrality prior to the thrust, and limit the amount of rotation in the thrust lest you increase the injury to the joint. Okay, let's switch gears now and take a look at another key finding from White and Punjabi. I'd like to look at the section on spinal trauma. 
I could probably spend a week on this as there's so much good material here. Perhaps I'll come back and do an in-depth study of their explanation of spinal trauma sometime in the future. For now, I want to focus on one particular mechanism of injury. First, let me read you this wonderful quote from page 170 of Clinical Biomechanics of the Spine. Quote, a good deal is known about the mechanism of injury in spinal trauma. However, there are also a number of assumptions that can lead to copious, sometimes erroneous, conclusions in the analysis of spine trauma. It is not uncommon for physicians to look for two to three seconds at a lateral radiograph of the cervical spine and then to embark upon detailed deliberations about the directions and magnitudes of the forces responsible for the observed injuries. In many of these situations, the, quote, learned dissertations constitute inappropriate, unfounded speculations. Given the current thrust in the direction of a more scientific engineering study of clinical phenomena, this type of speculation is no longer acceptable. However, such an analysis cannot be completely replaced by valid scientific data. The current state of knowledge lies somewhere between gross speculation and precise science." End quote. That is actually the introduction to Chapter 4, and wow is it loaded with statements. When they say physicians, they aren't meaning chiropractors, although they certainly aren't excluding them either. They're talking about medical doctors, but we certainly, certainly don't want to get caught up in demonstrating the same arrogant ignorance that they're criticizing. In the chapter on spinal trauma, White and Punjabi make a very interesting point. They state that spinal injury occurs under compressive loads, and it involves two distinct segmental spinal motions. The first motion is x-axis rotation, or the flexion-extension component of the subluxation. This is where we get the inferiority that is accompanied by posteriority at a roughly one-to-one -one ratio. In other words, for every random unit of inferiority, you get an equal amount of posteriority. However, they say that this motion is accompanied by a separate motion of z-axis translation. In other words, straight posteriority. Keeping in mind that White and Punjabi are not chiropractors and their book is not a chiropractic textbook, they offer no instruction on how to correct this. Nonetheless, I do think that we could easily deduce what must be done to correct this functional misalignment. So in that vein, I have a very important philosophical question for you to consider. If a chiropractor makes an adjustment with the intention of facilitating a correction and their adjustment fails, either in theory or in practice, to address these two distinct motions, is that chiropractor acting unethically? Now, I've never heard of a chiropractic ethicist. I googled it and I still couldn't find one. Not that Google is the be-all end-all, but if I can't find one on Google, then even if they do exist, they aren't very influential. It strikes me as odd that we don't have any chiropractic ethicist asking these very important questions. We can go back to our conversation about the atlas and ask the very same question. If the movement and cause of subluxation are known biomechanically, is it ethical to give an adjustment that does not address the root cause of the movement dysfunction by inducing proper motion? These are the hard questions our profession needs to ask itself. This is also the reason why students should not be satisfied with their school education, but they should continue to learn and grow throughout their career. If the schools think that white and Punjabi are beyond the student's ability to comprehend, at what point is it within your ability to comprehend, and therefore, a responsibility, and even a prerequisite for any kind of mastery? Those are just some questions for you to ponder, but I'd like to give you some practical application for these concepts we've discussed already today. When palpating the atlas, after you assess for rotation, which most people do first, 
Try to feel that superior translation as you rotate the head. Sometimes the loss of coupled motion is one of the best indicators of joint dysfunction. We always want to assess the primary motion, but we neglect this source of wonderful information. Of course, to do this throughout the spine, we have to know what the coupled motion is and should be. White and Punjabi has all the coupled motions in there. When you set up the atlas to adjust it, ask yourself the question, what is the perfect depth? Not too much and not too little. Earlier today, I was adjusting an atlas and I thought about this. I tried to visualize the joint surface of C2. I then visualized how much S to I I would need to simply approximate the two without over adjusting. I took out the rotation until I felt neutrality. I held that image in my mind as I delivered the thrust. The result was perfect depth. I knew it wasn't too much because I never felt the joint bind, nor did I feel the muscles on the other side tense or resist. This type of accurate visualization is the key to giving a better adjustment. And anyone can do it, regardless of experience or years in practice. It's about finding that higher level of focus by holding a more complete and accurate model in your head as you perform the adjustment. In the case of the lower cervical, when you perform the adjustment, can you feel the rotation around the x-axis while you simultaneously feel the translation along the z-axis? Both motions are necessary for a complete adjustment. If you can distinguish between the two, then you can immediately know if something was lacking from your adjustment and what you need to do it to fix it the next time. This of course requires a high level of palpating skill and sensitivity. You should never stop working to acquire more sensitivity in your palpation. Increasing your sensitivity and palpation will instantly make you a better adjuster as well. Even if you already consider yourself to be a good adjuster, increased sensitivity will still make you better because you'll become more aware of subtlety and nuance as it relates to the patient in front of you. It will also help you to develop greater consistency with the quality of your adjustments. Okay, back to White and Punjabi. Here's a great quote that explains the why behind something we all know to be true. To set this quote up, this section is talking about the mechanism that creates spinal fractures. Let's say you fell straight on top of your head. If your head position is even slightly in flexion, then you'll create a fracture in the anterior portion of the vertebra. In like manner, if you're in any kind of an extension position at the moment of impact, then you'll create a fracture in the posterior portion of the spine. Many, many studies have demonstrated this over and over again. It's in this context that they make the following statement, quote, Rolf indicated that he was not able to produce a hyperflexion injury of a normal intact spinal unit because vertebral body crush always occurred prior to the rupture of the posterior ligaments. Similarly, he recognized that it was not possible to rupture the anterior longitudinal ligament in the cervical spine by pure hyperextension force prior to producing crushed fractures of the neural arch. He noted that the ligamentous structures, while significantly resistant to compression and tensile loading of the functional spinal unit, were quite vulnerable to rotation. He also noted that the disc was subject to injury because of the horizontal shear forces produced by the rotation. Thus, when there are extensive ligamentous ruptures, clinically, the possibility of rotation, moments about the y-axis, should be strongly considered in an analysis of the mechanism of injury." End quote. To sum up that last part, if there's any damage to the ligaments of the spine, rotation should be avoided and it should be assumed to be the cause of injury if it occurs after the ligament injury. Remember, these are not chiropractors who are saying this. Now the thought that immediately comes to my head, and I'm only speaking from my experience here, but I've taught full spine classes and I've never taught the student to rotate anything. In fact, we intentionally taught them not to. However, 
whether through outside seminars or field docs or what have you, by the time the students are in clinic, many of them, maybe even most of them, are rotating their adjustments, especially their cervical adjustments, and they do it believing they're helping their patients with no idea how they're probably hurting them. It's not a good look for the profession when that happens. Now, from my perspective, I get a lot of patients after another chiropractor has made them worse, and I'm sure you probably do too. As much as we try to avoid rotation on a regular basis, it's even more important in these situations because the ligaments have been further damaged. The more ligamentous damage has occurred, the more dangerous rotation becomes. White and Punjabi includes a section on how to read an x-ray and properly interpret the forces that created the fractures that you see. That section is too extensive for me to cover it today, but there's one thing I want to point out. In most areas of the body, fracture occurs after the ligaments have been fully exhausted. However, the studies they show demonstrate that in the cervical spine, fracture occurs before ligamentous destruction. In other words, when you see a spinal fracture, don't assume ligament destruction or hypermobility. Their point is that it's not only possible, but likely that fracture occurs without any ligamentous damage. My point in sharing all this with you today is that it's great that we still follow the teachings of Dr. Gonstead, and it often amazes me how often modern science proves him right after all these years. However, we should not neglect the fact that modern science and the field of biomechanics has a lot that it can offer us to better inform us of how best to care for the people with their situation when it's unique or nuanced. When I first started in practice, I was looking for a niche that I could fill. I decided that biomechanics specialist was a pretty good one. To do that, I had to know everything I could about biomechanics. I would hunt the internet and study everything I could find on the subject. In spite of all that, White and Punjabi was the single most valuable resource I ever found on the subject. We've only scratched the surface of what this book has to give, but this eventually put me in a position where, whether the patient was seeing a physical therapist or an orthopedic surgeon or what have you, the doctor would often recommend that the patient come see me to ensure that they had proper biomechanics. I'm sure we'll come back to this book in the future and dive into it more with, with so many of its tremendous insights. Until then, I hope you found this helpful today and that it gave you some insight into how joints move and function. The end of the year is rapidly approaching. That being the case, I'm already receiving end-of-the-year stats on the podcast. This podcast has grown 50% in the last year, and it's now in the top 5% of podcasts heard around the world. That's entirely because of you. You guys are awesome. And because of you, people are learning about Gonstead all around the world. I just want to say thank you. And I want to encourage you to share this podcast with students in particular so they can get off on the right foot right from the beginning. Finally, if you're new to the podcast, please leave us a review so we can continue to spread the Gonstead word around the world. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.